we've been studying the supremacy of Jesus. Why is he supreme? Why is he superior? What is it about this man specifically that causes him to be the only man who ever lived upon the face of the earth who has had this specific personal identity? What is it? So when the Gospel of John, when the Holy Spirit gives John this word in the Gospel of John, verses chapter 3, 16, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his monogeneus weos. Remember the Greek, monogeneus weos. His only or his unique son. His unique son. And we went through several scriptures from the Old Testament showing what the word unique means. The word in that passage does not mean, it does not, is not talking about being born. It's being declared unique. It is not a passage talking about somebody was born. It is somebody who has been given or declared as unique. Monogeneus weos. So we're now beginning to trace out the Old Testament evidence. Who is this man? Because we've said this before. If the identity of this man is not first revealed in the Old Testament, then he is not who he says he is. Amen? The Old Testament is the ground, the bedrock, the soil out of which the New Testament springs. And so when we read the Old Testament, we're going to be having some understanding, but it's going to be a limited understanding. For instance, when you open, how many have done a puzzle? And so you get a thousand piece puzzle and you spread all the, the pieces on the table. And now you're looking at individual pieces of a puzzle. And when we do that, we can put two or three together here or there. You know, little clumps of them here and there, correct? You've done puzzles. And when we get two or three little clumps together, we can kind of get a, a thought, a, a, a vision, a kind of, oh, I see. There's something here. I see a little bit. But the problem is I see something, but I don't see what? Enough. And what am I failing to see? I'm failing. Say it again, Clara. You're right. The whole picture. I'm failing to see the rest of the story. I'm failing to see the fulfillment. And so because I don't have the whole picture in my, you know, at my disposal, I know that this puzzle is telling me something. And I get little glimpses and pieces and parts and bits. But I can't quite get it together. But I know there's a message. But then when I take the top of the box, right, set it in front of me, and I look at the top of the box, then I am able to see. Now, listen to how I say this. I'm able to see every puzzle piece in context with what it is, what it, with the face on the box. Then it begins to make what? Sense. Sense. 
Then I begin to see, ah, oh, that's what's going on here. That's what the Old Testament is. It's the scattering by the Holy Spirit of the puzzle pieces of God's promise of a coming Messiah throughout the ages of the Old Testament. Some pieces, several have landed here. Then maybe a few years later, there's one over here. And then come over here. Maybe there's six, or seven, et cetera. And then the master puzzle maker gives us the picture of the Messiah. And now he says, now I've given you the picture of the Messiah. Now I want you to go back and look at all the puzzle pieces and see how they are identifying and describing this Messiah. We need the Old Testament. Don't you ever fall for anything that anybody says if anybody says the Old Testament is irrelevant and it's not applicable for today. That is not the truth. So we've been going through this, and we're going to continue to go and move along. So we're looking for the identity of this unique son, this only begotten son from John 3.16. This unique son will be Israel's Messiah sent by the eternal decree of God the Father to deliver his people from their captivity into his new kingdom, his eternal kingdom. This is the promise that God has made. And where is the first promise, the first specific promise of this deliverer? Genesis 3.15. Make sure you get these issues under your belt. Genesis 3.15 is the first specific promise. Notice I said specific promise because I think there is a very veiled promise, but we won't go into that. A very specific promise. 3.15. What happens? God is cursing, placing a curse on the world because of Adam's sin. And he turns to Satan and he says, look, there's coming a day when the seed of a woman, that's a male child. A boy, a son, the seed of the woman will do what? He is going to crush you as to your head or your authority, and you are going to bruise him as to his heel. I know it says bruise him on the heel, but the Hebrew means as to in reference to his heel. So there's going to be a huge conflict here. <clears throat> but what's going to happen is this son is going to be so unique that he is going to be able to destroy the works of the enemy. Amen? For the Son of God has appeared for this one purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. You remember that in 1 John 3. So that's the promise. From that promise, all the way through the Old Testament, we are waiting for the revelation, the coming forth of this promised Son. And then in the New Testament, and we've covered several of these verses, this promised son is announced, remember, in Luke, by the angels. Remember, he is announced in Matthew when the uh, Holy Spirit tells Joseph that don't put Mary away because she's with child by the Holy Spirit. And you shall name his name Jesus. Why? Because he will deliver his people from their sin. And so we continue to trace it out. We've seen that this promise given in Genesis 3.15 is then 
carried through the descendants of Abraham. Remember in Abraham, remember Abraham, God promises in chapter 12 of Genesis, hey, Abraham, come out from where you are, go to another country. And he says this, I will make you a great nation. Now, what does it, what is necessary for Abraham to become the father of a great nation? He must have a son. Now, remember, biblically speaking, and this is God's design. This is not, what do you call, uh, chauvinism. This is God's design. Biblically speaking, God's work comes through the leadership of a man. Amen? Amen. His son. And so, to have a nation come from you means you're going to have a son. Today's world, you could say, well, I could have a daughter. Well, certainly, but that's not the way the Bible puts it. That's not the way God puts it. You're going to have a son. So there's a promise there. And so the descendants of Abraham, remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then Jacob has how many sons? Twelve sons. And to one of those sons is given specific, one of those sons is given specifically to be the father of the Messiah. Which son, which tribe does the Messiah come from? The tribe of Judah. Remember, we did that, I think we talked about last week. Remember in Genesis 49, Jacob is giving a blessing. And he, uh, when, when he comes to Judah, he says, the scepter. What is the scepter? The rule. It's a symbol of rule. The scepter shall not depart from Shiloh. I'm sorry, not depart until Shiloh comes. So what does that mean? Who is Shiloh? To him whose right it is to rule. The scepter shall remain in Judah until this one comes who will take the scepter as the only one who has the right to rule and he will rule the nations. This is the Messiah. And then we saw from Judah comes the Messiah, then all the way down through the centuries. Let me make sure we get this. Yeah. Then we found all the way down through the centuries, one day, a prophet goes to the house of Jesse. Remember the prophet's name? And the Lord sends Samuel to Jesse. And he says, my man, my anointed will come forth from Jesse. Who is Jesse? He is from the town of Bethlehem. And so a son will be born to Jesse. How many sons does Jesse have, by the way? Remember, who said eight? That's right. Somebody said eight. Okay. And so you remember when Samuel goes to Jesse and he says, I'm here to anoint your son as king. Well, I have seven sons. Which one? Well, bring each one before me. And they come one at a time, one at a time, seven. Hey, is there anybody else? Yeah, well, we have, you know, we have this one more son, but he's out. He's out doing what? He's tending the sheep of his father. He's a shepherd tending the sheep of his father. And Samuel says, bring him here. And when Samuel sees him, the Holy Spirit says, this is the man. This is the man through whom I will bring my Genesis 3.15 promise to fulfillment. This is the man. So David is anointed. You remember, 
while Saul is still king, David is anointed as God's king to rule over his people. Are we up to date on where we're going here? This is just the trail, the history of the background. And so years later, David is king. And remember, we read in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, where Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, promises David that his son, or a son, his son shall sit on the throne of Israel. Do you remember the name of that son specifically? Who succeeded David? Solomon. And what does Second Chronicles 29 say? And Solomon sat on the throne of God over Israel. Solomon is the only king who is, whose reign and rule is described that way. He's just not sitting on the throne of Israel. This man is sitting on the throne of God, which is an inference that this man's rulership, his kingship, is greater than just the kingship of another king. He has a greater, uh, um, he's foreshadowing the great king. Remember we read last week, and the Lord highly exalted Solomon. Do you remember that? Highly exalted him in his reign. Where have we seen that highly exalted? We did that last week. When you read these Old Testament terminologies, you want to have the New Testament fulfillment in your heart. Highly exalted. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to what? He did not grasp at being God. But what did he do? Humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on the cross. And then verse 9 begins this way. Wherefore also God has highly exalted him and has given him a name above every name. Remember that? That at the name of Jesus, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of what? Things in the heavens, on the earth, and underneath the earth. And every knee will bow. What else does it say? To the glory of God the Father. Solomon is highly exalted. He is a picture, a type of this greater son. I'm, I'm moving along too slowly. <clears throat> Am I going too slow for you? I, I don't want to go too fast or slow. I'm so this promised king, this promised king, who will sit on David's throne from second, um, I always get chronicles in, in Samuel backward, second Samuel 7, 12 and 13. This king will be more than just another king. He will be God's royal Messiah. He will be God's royal son to sit on this throne. And this is the one whom Israel was expecting to deliver them from the armies you know, from the foreign rule and oppression. This is the one who would save Israel, kick the Romans out, him and during the time of Jesus. And this is the one who will establish him in the land. You see, Israel was looking for a Messiah, but it was looking for a mortal man, 
they were looking for just a great king like David. They were looking for, and they weren't looking for reincarnation, but they were looking for the coming again of a David type of king, a great man who will be able to lead Israel in some kind of rebellion or whatever it would be to overthrow their presses. So on the day of Palm Sunday, do you remember that day in your word reading? Do you remember that? What happens? Jesus enters the city. He's riding on the, a coat. Remember that? And they're putting palm branches on the ground and they're waving and, and whatever. Do you remember that? And what do they say? Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you, do you remember? Hosanna. They call him son of David. And when they say son of David, son of David is the messianic title of the royal Messiah who will come to deliver Israel. It's just not, hey, you're related to uh, Lester. I know you. This is a messianic title specifically relating to the messiahship. They, they believe he's the Messiah, but they don't understand who he really is. So they say, Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Remember, it's both a praise and a call. It means praise be to God. Save us. Right? It means save us. Remember, Hosea is the word for what? Deliverer. Hosanna. It's a praise, and it means save us. They're praising God and in the midst of the praise, asking God to save them. Save them from what? Who else has entered Jerusalem on the other side of the city from the west to make sure that rebellion doesn't occur during Passover? Who else? Pontius Pilate and the Roman Legion. Now remember, Pontius Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives in Caesarea Philippi. I mean, you know, you, you, you can be rule over New Orleans. You don't live in West Wego. Maybe Chalmette. Save us. Oh, son of David, wonderful son of David, save us from that. That's what's happening. So they're expecting a mortal savior. But you see, God had a grander purpose in mind. Amen. Israel had thought that this son of David, this man, Jesus, would be just, would be, would, would be God's great king. By the way, do you remember who else rode into the city of the Jebusites having conquered it and he rode in on a donkey? David did. And you remember the coronation of David? He rides a donkey. There's a whole lot of symbolism there. You just need to see what they're seeing. And so they believe Jesus could be the man. But remember, in their minds, Jesus is a mortal man. And this is what bothered the Pharisees so much. Jesus being a mortal man was sounding like he was making himself out to be God. And obviously their theology would not accept that. And in one way they were correct. But, of course, in another way, they were wrong. 
So Israel had thought that this son of David would be just a great king anointed with the Spirit of God. Remember, the Spirit of God came on Saul and he did mighty works. The Spirit of God resided with David. You remember that. The Spirit of God anointed and filled these men with great power to do the ministry that God has given them to do. The Spirit of God came on Elijah. Elisha, it came on. He came on John the Baptist. The Spirit of God came upon these men in the Old Testament and they did great works. This is what they're looking for. Another wonderful man anointed powerfully by the Spirit of God. But a mortal. Listen to some of the scriptures that they knew. Isaiah 7, 14 to 15. 14. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. You remember the word Emmanuel? Remember what it means? God with us. Where do you, what verse in the New Testament do you see is a description of Emmanuel? Now, try, ask the Holy Spirit to connect Old Testament information and revelation with New Testament fulfillment. Do you remember 1 Peter 1, 4? What? We have become partakers of the divine Nature. Emmanuel. Correct? We have become partakers of the divine nature. The church is the living expression of what Emmanuel is. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. Then a shoot will spring. This is what these men and women knew about this coming Messiah. A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is whom they are looking for, this kind of a man. Isaiah 4.2, in that day, what day? That day when this Messiah will appear. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth. Do you see? It's talking about bare fruit. The earth. Begin to get the idea that the purpose of this branch is to bring forth a great nation to fill the earth. Are you with me? Okay. Now, why was this God's purpose in the branch or in this Messiah, in this person who comes forth out of the family of Jesse. Where does all that originate? Genesis 1, 26, let us make man after our, in our image after our likeness. And what does verse 28 says? Be f f fruitful and multiply and Fill the earth. So when it's talking about the fruit bearing of the branch. What is it talking about? From this one branch, this one man, God's original purpose for creating humanity will be fulfilled. You have to go all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. That's the reason we read Genesis 12. That's the reason why God, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Remember in Acts 7, 55, Stephen. The father, God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Why do we begin so often with Abraham as the clear 
uh, pr pronouncement of the covenant of God because it was all promised in the beginning in Genesis 1.26. It is a continuing story. Jeremiah 25, 23, 5-6, day, days are coming, declares the Lord. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now, remember, this is written right at the Babylonian captivity time. Jerusalem was about to fall and be destroyed, and in their minds, forever. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Zechariah 6.12, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Who is the temple of the Lord today? What does Paul tell the Corinthians? Do you not know that what? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how it comes together? So they're looking for a man who will come. They have copious verses, copious scriptures over and over throughout the Old Testament promising this man, promising this man, promising this man, promising this man, looking for this man. So when Israel reads these scriptures, they do not understand them in the full context. Why? Because, you see, they are looking at pieces of a puzzle without having the final picture being revealed to them. But they know enough that God is promising a deliverer. They did not connect these scriptures and many others with the other scriptures that pointed to the absolute uniqueness of this branch. They were looking for another man. Why? Why did they not see? Well, on the natural level, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The natural level, why didn't they see? You, you may write a, a note on this. You may put it down as what's going on. Why don't people understand the gospel? Why don't they see? I've explained it a hundred times, and they still don't get it. How many can, can, can witness that? How many of you have explained the gospel to people many times, and they still look at you like you're nuts? Come on, raise your hand. Yes. What's wrong? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In whose case? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you, do you see that verse? And by the way, I'll give you a quick hint. What is the gospel? Most people, most Christians would define the gospel in terms of ourselves. It's God's work to save us, correct? Is that wrong? No. Is that right? Yes, yes, come on. What's the problem with defining the gospel that way as if it is the primary point of the gospel? It misses the point. What is the primary point? Revelation of the gospel. Let me read it again. In whose case 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You want to know what the gospel is in its essence? It's the revelation of the glory of Christ in his corporate body, the church, for the glory of God the Father. The gospel is the glory of Christ as manifested or in the expression of his church, his body, for the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Then how does he do it? Then we talk about Jesus being anointed, Jesus being born, you know, the incarnation, the suffering to death. Then we talk about all that, Butch, right? But we don't want to put the means before the purpose. The means achieves the purpose. So let's make sure we get what the gospel is in its essence a little better than we have in the past. But on the scriptural level, so they can't see. Why? They're being blinded. What, <laughs> what are we going to do about it? Well, why are they being blinded? Why are people being blinded to the gospel? This is just one verse. We could read many. Isaiah 6, 9. They keep on listening, but they do not perceive. How many of you have known that these people keep hearing what I'm saying, but they're not getting it? Anybody with me on that? They keep on looking, but they do not, what? Understand. Why are they not getting it? And here's where people hate God. Satan is blinding their minds. Is that right? But who is pulling the strings? I don't like to say that. Who is giving the permission? Who is behind the scenes decreeing everything that's going on? Who? God. Satan is doing what is doing under the leadership and the decree of a God who will always be sovereign. Because if you read further in that verse, it says... I don't want them to understand with their natural understanding. He doesn't say it quite like that, but that's what they get, he's getting at. I don't want them to see with their natural eyes. I am not giving my gospel over to something of the flesh, to your own intelligence, to your own perspicacity. I'm not giving my gospel over to you. My gospel will be revealed one way. By the revelation of the Holy Spirit to your heart and mind. Amen. Because God says, I am sovereign. And I will not give you any of my sovereignty. You see, he doesn't share his sovereignty with us in that context. In that context. So, you want to know why they're not getting it? Satan's blinding their minds. And for some people, their minds will continue to be blinded. But for the believers 
who were born into this world under the foreknowledge of God, who has predestined them to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29, those people will have their hearts and minds open to the gospel in the fullness of God's time through God's means. Can you say amen? So keep on witnessing. Keep on preaching. Because God is using this. He doesn't need it. He uses it because he lovingly is joy-filled to join us into his own work. I hear preachers say, God needs your hands. Oh, God needs you to. God don't need nothing from nobody, no time. He lovingly and graciously chooses to bring us into his family and to use us as his co-workers, which Paul calls us, co-workers. What a, what's, a, what's a particular verse that he didn't understand? They didn't understand. Listen to this. You've all heard it, Isaiah 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now stop. What's, we talked about this before. What's peculiar about the terminology? The word given. Do we talk like that? So you had a baby. Yeah. What was it? Well, unto me, a child was born. Unto me, a son was given. Well, no, we don't talk like that. I had a little baby boy, a girl. What's the emphasis? A child is born. The emphasis on humanity. David, a son, will sit on your throne. A son is given. An emphasis of God's special work of grace in giving someone who will be born as a child into this world. You see, this is that unique, only begotten, monogenes weos, son of God. He is given. He's a gift of grace. So where else do we find that this is a gift of ours? Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And not, not of yourselves, but it is a gift you see, Jesus is God's gift to us. None of us would oppose that. Here it is right here. He's a gift. This is not just another baby boy. This is God's eternal son. So what we're going to be doing in the next week or two is looking at how the Old Testament describes and anticipates and, and identifies this son who has been given to us. This son who is promised from Genesis 3.15 all the way through. And so when we say John 3.16, hopefully from now on, we're going to be able to remember and to collect in our minds a vast array of Old Testament scriptural evidence that says of this son so much more than what we typically do. Oh, well, that means Jesus, right? 
That means Jesus, and he said, we want to see. We are talking about the fulfillment of the eternal purpose of God in this one man. And so we're going to begin to look at the Psalms for that identity. And you remember what Jesus said in Luke 24, 44. This would be our authority. He says at the end to these two travelers, remember two disciples who had left Jerusalem downcast. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. All things that are written about me in where? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings must be fulfilled. He breaks down the scriptures in three ways. Three ways. And that three-way determination to the Jewish people today is not called the Old Testament. It's called the Tanakh. Did I, did I have that in your notes? It's called the Tanakh. Don't say Old Testament to Jewish people. The Tanakh. The Torah, which is what? The instruction of the law, the Pentateuch. The Nevin, which is what? 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 The, the prophets. And they're differently listed, we would say. And the Ketuvim, which is what? The writings. The writings. That's the Old Testament scriptures. That's what Jesus was saying. Everything in the Tanakh is about me. And so we're going to begin to look at the Psalms specifically. How the Psalms identify and describe this one who is God's only begotten son. So next week we'll start with Psalm 2. Thank you a lot.